Walking in the light, 1 John. 1 John on the path to living deeply in Christ. And nowhere is that title more relevant than in this teaching this morning. I have uh, five points from this text. We'll do three this morning and we'll do two next Sunday morning. Title is, How to Know You Have Passed Out of Death and Into Life. How to Know That You Have Passed Out of Death and into life. If someone asked you, how do you know that Jesus really lives in you and you're saved for sure? And they said, how do you know that? What do you think you'd say to them? Would you sing, you know, an old hymn, He Lives? You ask me how I know He lives, He lives within my heart. They say, well, that's great, but how, how do you know He lives within your heart? What kind of an answer would you give? That's what we're looking at today. How to know you have passed out of death and into life. The text is 1 John chapter 3, 11 to 13. If you turn your... Bible on electronically or open it up. Let's study these words together. 1 John 3, 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. So he's going to talk about Cain and Abel, which just seems like a strange subject to introduce right here. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Remember Cain and Abel? And why did he murder him? That why question, that seems really important to John. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds, that is Cain's, his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. Strong word, eh? The world we know, so the title was, how do you know you've passed out of death into life? How We know that we have, there it is, passed out of death into life. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then he just can't let it go. Everyone who hates his brother is, uh, say that word with me. Murderer. Really? Seems a little extreme. And you know that no murder has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he, this he is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our own lives for the brothers. And the sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and this sounds like James, doesn't it? If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how? How does God's love, in what sense? In what sense does God's love abide in him? Little children 
Let us not love in word of talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's just pray together. There's a lot in this text, and we're all smart enough that we can see the meaning of the words. We can put sentences together. But what we do need is your Holy Spirit to make us submissive to what we understand, to treasure what we see and hear, to be honest as we apply it to our own hearts so that your word will produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold in our lives. Today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. That's, that's quite a text that John 3, 11 to 18, and what it really is, it's unpacking the implications of the very first verse in chapter 3. That, that great verse, 3, 1, that says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That, that we, we should be called children of God, offspring of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So 3.1 says, it's unbelievable. Look at the kind of love God has for undeserving, guilty, sinful people like us. What he's done is he has adopted us into his family and he's made all of us his children. Now our text today grows out of that theme text, and John kind of forces me to think it through instead of just enjoy it. Today's text is a deduction from 3.1. It's, it's the fruit of that first verse. You see, it works like this. If God is my Father then I, unbelievably, am his child. And if God is your father, unbelievably, you're his child. That's the miracle of our adoption as God's children in Christ Jesus. This whole planet isn't covered with God's children. It's covered with God's creatures. The media uses that very loosely. The only ones who are God's Children are those who are adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the miracle of 3.1. Behold the kind of love God has for us that we should be called children of God. And we are. But if I'm God's child, if he's my father, and if God is your father, you're his child, so far so good, but our text now in chapter 3, 11 to 18 goes a step further. If I'm God's child, and you're God's child, we're related. Isn't that the way it works? We have the same heavenly father. So in other words, in other words, in spite of what you might think or hear, when you came to Jesus, you didn't just get a relationship with God. That's the one we talk about. When you came to Jesus, you didn't just get a relationship with God. 
look right and left down the road. You got a relationship with those people. You can't get a relationship with Jesus without getting a relationship with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. John means for us to not just trip over this lightly. I get it, brothers and sisters. Usually it's when you don't know the person's name. Oh, brother, good to see you. Yes, sister, how are you? Who is that? You know, that type of thing. So he doesn't want us just tripping over this lightly. So, so immediately after telling us of the wonder of the adopting power of God's sacrificial love for us in Christ, what John does immediately after that is he starts applying it to our lives. And he does it strangely, but not completely strangely. If his point is, when I got a relationship with Jesus, and when you got a relationship with Jesus, we got a relationship with each other, it's really not surprising that the first thing John talks about now is two brothers. That makes sense, doesn't it? He's trying to illustrate something. So that's where we are. We're going to do three points this morning. Point number one, a tale of two famous brothers and its lesson. 11 and 12, 1 John 3. This is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Okay, there's the principle, and everybody says amen. We all know everybody should be loving. Only John doesn't stop with that. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Who's that? That's the devil, right? Yes. Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you have to ask a question as you read those verses. So John writes this to Christian people in churches like this. Does John actually have the secret fear that in these congregations there are people sitting side by side, who are, who are plotting how to murder the person sitting beside them. Is that what's in John's mind? And I doubt it. I doubt it. Don't be like Cain the murderer. I mean, I, I would never kill any of you. And, and perhaps with a few exceptions, most of you wouldn't kill me either. At worst, if I've been wronged or mistreated, I'm, I, might get, I might get quite bitter with you and just kind of quietly stew and rage against you on the inside. And John would say, there it is, Don. There it is. Right there. That's just like Cain. And I'd say, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is, the Holy Spirit would say. It is just like Cain if we remember that John is describing God's view of my hateful heart. And, and John is crying out for my attention to the fact that God is just as grieved and I am just as 
guilty in his eyes when I hate my brother as Cain was when he killed his brother. Wow. That's quite a sin, isn't it? There is simply no intelligent way of dealing with this text without beginning with that striking truth. It's what he means to say, clearly. Like it or not, it's what John means to say, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and could it also be true that, that just as much damage is done to my soul, I'm not talking about the, the legal system and the justice system and the penalty under the law, I don't mean that. Is it possible that just as much damage is done to my heart when I hate someone as when I kill someone. And could it be that I'm not good at seeing the wickedness of Cain's, I'm good at seeing the wickedness of Cain's sin, but almost blind to seeing the wickedness of my own hatred and anger and bitterness? Do, do I lose the ability to see and define sin as clearly when it's my own heart that I'm talking about? I think all of that is in John's mind. When you hate, when you rage against a brother or sister in Christ, I'm not speaking to them anymore. We, we, need to just, we need to just stop, church, and look at this and say, here's what the Holy Spirit says. You're a murderer. You're a murderer. And I, I, I just don't like hearing that. Let's move on. Point number two. Every attitude of animosity, anger, bitterness is a manifestation of the devil's rule in my heart. That's also in the text. Of course, of course that's not the way I usually think of it. I usually think of my rankled spirit as nothing more than, you know what, this is my concern for justice. <laughs> Somebody has to write the moral injustice that's been done to me. And if I don't, who will? There. This is righteous. Or I think of it as just, it's my temperament. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. And, and it seems John knows how my heart schemes for its own defense. He addresses my blind spot very specifically by saying, saying, Don, that sour heart doesn't reveal anything about what your brother did to you. That's not what it reveals. It only reveals Satan is ruling your heart. That's all it reveals. I don't think it says that, Pastor Don. Well, read it. We should not be like Cain who was right there, of the evil one. Not just, it's, it's different from just sort of falling at some point, making a mistake, repenting. Of the evil one means there's, there's something of, of a, a territory that you're giving Satan in your heart and justifying. Of the evil one, birthed of the evil one. It's quite a contrast. Behold what manner of love, 3-1. That we should be called children of God, birthed 
Now he says, when, when there's hatred and this kind of bitterness and rage in your heart, you're birthed, but it's not from God. It's of, it's of the evil one. You, you can carry your Bible to church and be birthed of the evil one. It's quite a verse. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why? 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 Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. John, John seems intent on pressing that why question. Why did he murder him? So that, so that my hatred only shows the state of my heart. And it's not just a matter of temperament or my desire for divine justice. John says it's, it's of the evil one, who was of the evil one, 3.12. That's why, I mean, that's why John is so blunt in the way he likens my bitterness, my anger, my ill will. He likens it to murder. Because everyone knows, I think, everyone knows, murder is not something you can ever justify, Right? You just can't justify it. So it is, says John, Don, with your anger, your bitterness about what so-and-so did to you, don't even try to justify it. It's like justifying murder. Never relabel your rage, your resentment, your pouting, your bitterness. Never, never call that a hunger for righteousness or just getting even or just teaching someone a lesson. John says, There's, you can't justify this. You can't justify this. Let me, okay, let me risk offending you. The story's a little stark, but I'm telling it because I, I, when it's done, I think you'll see the point. Just pretend with me. Imagine coming home from an evening out. You've left your 15-year-old and your 14-year-old sons. The 15-year-old is babysitting. You're just going out for a little while. You go out with your wife. You have coffee somewhere. You come home. You come into the living room. To your horror, you see your older son, the 15-year-old. He has the poker from the fireplace in his hand. And he's beating the now lifeless body of the 4-year-old. I told you it was kind of a gross story. Blood is all over the couch. And in your horror, horror, the parent screams out, what in the world are you doing? And you discover the 15-year-old has no grief, no remorse in his heart whatsoever. His voice is calm. And he says, well, he had it coming. I, I, I was in here and I was watching the football game. He came walking in. And he changed channels without even asking me. Question. Can you imagine the parent saying, oh, oh, well, I didn't know he did that, the little rat. I guess he had it coming. Does that make any sense at all, that kind of response? And the reason it doesn't is you, you can't justify killing a brother, right? I mean, there are no words that can come out of your mouth that can justify killing a brother. And now, bring it home. Don't be like Cain. 
Yeah, but you know what they did? You should see what they did to us, those people in the church, what they said. And, but there's no justifying this. You can't make this righteous. You can't just leave it alone. This is of the devil. This is growing in your heart. Label it any way you want. Play any game you want. It stands horrifically before God. That's the point John is making. Nothing, nothing, nothing ever justifies my hateful response to a brother or sister in Christ. And John knows me, he knows you, we all have this tendency to find very holy explanations for vengeance and anger and bitterness and the dark side of our own heart. And Satan's rule gets a deeper and deeper hold on my darkened heart to the extent that I don't tell myself the truth about my response to what somebody did. Jesus isn't Lord. How to know you've passed from death into life. That's the title. Jesus isn't Lord until a hateful attitude has been replaced by loving actions. We know what love looks like from the teaching of the scriptures. Look this verse up with me, would you? 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. Peter writes to these persecuted Christians. Here's how it starts. The end of all things is at hand. Now, last times. That was a long time ago, but Peter's writing about the last days. We're getting closer. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Okay, there's some instruction there. But look at here. Above all, okay, Peter. So, more than anything else you've said so far, this is what you want me to give my attention to. Above all, foremost, top of the list. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Here's another verse. Same idea, Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. It's not talking about covering up my own sin because the Bible says he who covers his sin will not prosper. It's talking about covering the sins that others commit against me. That's what Peter is talking about as well, by the way. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So when Peter talks about the end of the age, notice, end of all things is at hand. Talks about the end of the age, but he has almost no interest whatsoever in pinpointing the timing of the rapture or the millennium, what things are going on in the Middle East and how that fulfills prophecy. There's no charts, graphs, nothing. When he thinks about the end of all things being near, he tells us what he wants the church to be focusing on above all. What, Peter? What's so important that when the end gets closer and closer. You want the church thinking about this more than she's thinking about anything else. How can that possibly be? What is it? Well, above all else, we're to focus on 
how we love each other. Right there. How we love each other. I, I take that to mean, and the way we're supposed to do it, by the way, is this, this verb, adverb. Earnestly. Earnestly. Not talk. Nothing faked. So I take that to mean we're to make sure that love doesn't grow cold in any relationship in the body of Christ. We're to make sure that love doesn't become just talk. We're to make sure it doesn't turn into bitterness, anger, coldness. Keep, keep on. Keep loving each other. People aren't always going to be lovable, but keep loving them earnestly. People will do things to you that they shouldn't do, but keep loving them earnestly. It's pretty demanding, isn't it? People will hold views you don't hold, but keep loving them earnestly. Whom have you quit loving recently? Well, no one, Pastor Don. I'm a Christian. I, I just love everybody. Well, how do you know? How do you know you've passed from death into life? How do you know you love everyone? What does, what does keeping love look like? Well, again, Peter's not going to leave us in the dark. He's going to tell us exactly what it is. Let me just clean this up a little bit. How do I know I'm loving? Well, here's what love does. Say that with me. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, Pastor Don, I don't like the sound of that. We'll be going soft on holiness. No, no, we won't. We won't. Because I'm not covering my sins. I'm dealing with my sins. And there are scriptural patterns set up occasionally to deal with certain kinds of sins in the body of Christ. Well, what about when that doesn't happen, Pastor Don, the way I think it ought to happen? What about people who just get away with their sins? You know what they did to me? They're just getting away with it. Who's getting away with it? Who, who won't stand before the throne of God, Paul says, to give account of deeds, good and bad, done in the flesh? Who's going to miss out on that? Or if they're Christians and have repented of their sins, whose sins aren't covered, have been pardoned through the actual death of God the Son. A huge price has been paid for my brother's sin against me. I don't have to add to it. No sin is ever ignored. Ever. The real question, I think, is quite different. The real question in Peter's perspective and in John's perspective is this. The real question is, why, why is this such a big thing to me? Why, why do I feel this anger or coldness? It can be different ways, you know, blowing up in anger or just I'm not talking to them anymore. Thank you very much. Happens all the time in churches by people who think they're Christians.
Why am I so anxious to see my brother punished? I'm to love the one who has wronged me like a brother. And Peter tells me what that love looks like. Its number one concern is to cover up my persecutor's guilt. That's my number one concern. The last thing I want, if I'm loving the way Peter and John say, the last thing I want is to have my brother's sins exposed. I want my sins exposed. I'm not out to expose theirs. I cover theirs. I bear with theirs. I endure theirs. And so love covers a multitude of sins. When, when, when Peter says that, he's writing about my response to people who sin against me in the church. And what Peter says is real love. It just covers those things up. It bears with the wrongs of others. It will suffer the pain others inflict without striking back, without growing cold, without holding a grudge. And Peter got this from Jesus. Here's where he got it. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Well, I, I do. I do. This isn't passive. Do good to those who hate you. Bake them a pie. Take it over to the house. Shovel their driveway in the wintertime when it piles up. Yeah, that person that can't stand you, that one that quit coming to church because they're mad at you, bake a loaf of bread. Take it over to them. Don't just say you love your enemies. Any, anybody can do that. Do you see those words? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So we, we pray God's best for them. That's how we love our enemies. We tell them we would love to be a blessing to them. That's how we love our enemies. If they would just tell us how, we make time to bless them with fellowship and sharing and warmth. Apologies, even when we weren't the ones who maybe caused the problem. Yeah, Jesus said, bless those who wrong you. Point number three. Jesus Christ is my pattern for loving and forgiving others who have wronged me. I get that in 1 John 3.16, right in our text. By this we know love, okay? Everybody sings about love. We close our eyes. We raise our hands. We sing about love. But by this we know love. That he, this is Jesus, laid down his life for us. By the way, we were the ones who wronged him. We were the guilty party, right? He didn't do anything bad to us. We were the guilty ones. We wronged him. What did he do? Well, he laid down his life for us. Oh, John says, yeah, do it like that. Do it like that. He laid down his love for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. So Jesus is, he's more than just a teacher to be listened to. He's, he's a Lord 
to be obeyed. He's a pattern to be copied. This is the way forgiveness and love work. Whether divine or human, God bears with... What, what, what does God do with all of the sins that Christians commit? How many Christians are there on the planet? Two point some billion. And none of them is perfect. Every day. You know, it's like the recycling that you put out in your driveway and they pick it up. Where does all that stuff go? So what happens with all the sins every day of billions of Christians? What does God do with it? I'll tell you what he does with it. Because God the Son died on the cross. Here's what God does. He's a holy God who's grieved at all that sin. You know what he does with it? He bears with it. He endures it. He, like Peter says, he covers it with the blood of Jesus, God the Son. That's what he does with all those sins, and he does it every day, 24-7, every minute those two billion Christians breathe. God bears with our sins. And you know what he does? He keeps forgiving us. And he keeps loving us. John says, right there, do it like that. Do it like that. God gave up every personal right when he pardoned me. And Peter says that kind of love has to be practiced, his words, above all. And it has to be done earnestly until Jesus comes again. Here's my final sentence. Never let another person ruin your life by making you hate them. Never let another person ruin your life by making you hate them. Love covers sin. And everyone said, I think probably what we all meant to say was, oh God, help me, right? Let's pray. What a text. What a text. We, we, we don't like to see that resemblance to Cain who had no justification for the way he treated his brother. We don't, we don't like to see ourselves pictured in that way. And so for every moment we have, we have lived in a bad attitude toward a brother or sister in Christ for whom you died, by the way, for every moment we, we say, Jesus, forgive me, forgive me. I don't want to be of the evil one. I want to be a son, a daughter of God through Jesus Christ ruling and reigning and forgiving in my heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.